You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Good evening and you're very welcome to this week's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan wishing you a very happy Pancake Tuesday. And on tonight's programme, as it's the eve of Valentine's Day, and Ron Forrestal hasn't been here in a while, he's going to join us shortly to talk about French wines. I'm out on my travels in Cork and Belfast. In the former, I call to Richard Jacob in Idaho Cafe. And in the latter, I visit Chef Ian Hunter in Belfast Cookery School to learn about a Game of Thrones-inspired cookery lesson and lots, lots more. If at any point you'd like to get in touch with me here at the show, you can drop me an email to s.noonan at live.ie or tweet me at Queen of Org as in Queen of Organisation. So to start the show off tonight, we have our wine guru, Ron Forrestal, in studio. And if you were good and stuck to dry January, you're going to be as happy to see him as I am. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Hello, Ron. Hi, Sharon. Happy Valentine's Day. Yes, it's a great time of year. We're going to France then to talk about wines that are not just suitable for Valentine's Day, but for lots of other times of the year. Yes, France is probably the um, the, her- the heritage of most all grape varieties come from. Um, it's hugely important, um, hugely confusing for people as well, which makes it uh, not always the first choice for, for people who are particularly starting out drinking wine. Um, and we just want to dispel a few of the myths and make it a bit easier to choose something. So does wine come from France? Is France the, the first country that wine was ever made in? Um, well, there's a question about that. Uh, there's a question that China had done something first. Um, Italy would, would uh, argue that point. But just look at the grape varieties, the most common grape varieties in the world, which are Sauvignon, Cabernet Sauvignon, um, Shiraz, which is actually Syrah, all French grape varieties. Um, so for that reason, they probably have the, uh, the, the right to call it. They were the, uh, the originators of most of those. Because that's very interesting about China. It is, yeah, yeah. They found it hundreds of hundreds of years before anybody else. It was a it was a process of producing fruit into wine. Do you stock any Chinese wines? No, but actually, it's much more. Uh, it's coming into the market uh, in a fairly sizable way. Uh, there's a number of uh, Europeans have gone to China, uh, winemakers, uh, marketing people, and are helping out with Chinese wineries. So you never know. In the future, we could be talking about Chinese wines. Yes, but if you think about it, like the, for them to create enough to actually export anything would be amazing. So it'll take years for them to get to that point. And with, with, anything, with like anything that you grow, the weather conditions, the soil, all of those are going to impact on the flavours yeah, of the wine. So even though those certain grapes might have started in France and then mm, they're yeah, using yeah. that grape variety in Australia, it's a Sauvignon Blanc for France, it's a Sauvignon Blanc from Australia, they're two distinctive tastes. Absolutely, they change an awful lot. And it's not so much even that the grape variety, that the actual plant itself changes that much it's the grapes themselves as they're growing and the weather they get like in France the the issue France have is really that their weather changes from year to year they just don't have the consistency that South Africa have that Chile Argentina or Australia have or even Spain for that matter so it makes where you'd find a really good 2014 Sauvignon Blanc and you really liked it and you were drinking it or a Cabernet Sauvignon or a Merlot 
and then when you vintage moves to another one, it might be might be quite different than it was um, because of, of weather conditions. I was only talking to a French guy a couple of hours ago about the uh, Bordeaux 2016 vintage, and it looks like it's about 10% more expensive than the 2015. Interesting. Because of the weather. The yeah. weather's better. Okay. So. And Beaujolais. There used to be lots of mm. hype around Beaujolais whenever it came out. Yes. And about buying it and keeping it for X number of years. Is that still the case? Or well, the Beaujolais thing is supposed to be drank very quickly. Um, the, the Beaujolais Nouveau was released uh, every autumn. Um, it was a huge deal years ago of, of trying to get the first few cases of the Beaujolais to Ireland as fast as possible. So you could be drinking it on the same night it was launched as, as in Europe. Um, people flew over and collected it. It was, it was a real... Um, just a real event uh, whereas now it's it's it passes by with nobody even noticing it at yeah all. i do remember a lot of hype around the beaujolais yes would you believe it? a number of, of people in the wine business uh, lost their life actually in a plane crash heading to beaujolais to pick up wine for that particular reason um god that must be 25 years my ago. god yeah so in addition to beaujolais yes. what what well, other wines are are most associated with well, you have you, you, some, some very wine regions that you know of and you've heard of before. Uh, so for whites, you have uh, the Loire Valley, where Sancerre comes from, Pudifume, Muscadet, all those names that you'd see on supermarket shelves. Um, mainly Sauvignon Blanc is the main grape variety. They tend to be very fresh. They're from the north of France. Um, pretty acidic, work very well with food, but really, really nice products. And they start off reasonably priced enough, but they can pay anything for them. You can buy Pulafume, Barandel, costing, you know, 70, 80 euros a bottle, that kind of price. And every year, this, this stuff is very popular. The small quantities of it sent to Ireland because they only produce a certain amount. I was talking to somebody recently who would have had a dinner with Charlie Hockey at a time. Oh. And he said it would start it off with a bottle of Veuve Clicquot. Then next, it was the Pouli Fumé. Mm. And I just can't remember what the red was. Give me an example of a very good red. Ought to be a Bordeaux, no doubt. Be a Chateau, Lynch badge, something recognisable okay. that they would they would have. Yeah. yeah. Uh, his, his main um, um, haunt in, in Dublin was Le Cocardie, a restaurant owned of by course, John Howard, yeah. Yeah. Uh, who was famous for his cellar. Mm-hmm. Absolutely okay. famous. A uh, uh, cellar that got flooded, actually, uh, uh, later down, and most of the products were damaged. But he had an amazing cellar. But he had an amazing clientele. Why did that close down? I, I, I can't remember when it closed or... I think it was that uh, flood uh, that, that really did it. Um, I, I think business had changed. Um, John Howard was, was, had been a legend in the business, you know, and I think he, he moved on. Uh, Charlie Hawhey wasn't, uh, wasn't uh, Prime Minister for anymore, so that was going to be an issue for him. So, and a few other things... Um, other restaurants opened up. I, I'd imagine Derry Clark got involved around that kind of time, and there was more competition yeah, then. Yeah, moved on. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, it's not a, a restaurant that I ever remember being in existence. Whenever I would have been looking for restaurants, or yeah. maybe I was just never that, in that sort of market. It's a wine merchant's uh, building now. It's it's uh, Morgan Wine Merchants are there. Okay. But other regions in France, if you move on then, like the ones that you'd really recognise are like Burgundy, where you'd have all Chablis comes from, Macon, Looney, uh, Fleury, all the names you'd recognise from there. And then Bordeaux, which is, you know, left bank, right bank, all the names, Latour, Mouton Rothschild, that you can pay absolutely anything for. Uh, starting off at eight or nine euros a bottle and going up to anything you can imagine. 
couple Shall hundred thousand a bottle in some cases. Yeah, that's it's just crazy money, isn't it? It is really. And I mean, just whenever you open, I'm sure you've tasted a bottle of wine that cost two grand at some stage in your career. Yeah, we've had tastings that have that have gone up to that limit where they, they tend to do a lot of um, age tastings where you'd have the current vintage that you'd be drinking, say 2010, and then going back to 2005, 2095. They would be the ones that would stick out. And whenever that glass is sitting in front of you and with such a high value, I'd say you make sure that your palate and everything is totally ready for it. But what's what's it feel like to taste something that's that expensive? Well, see, it's a funny thing. It's it's if you get a really good bottle of Bordeaux at that's costing like 35 or 40 euros a bottle and you're into really good product at that stage, uh, they tend to be a blend of of a two to three grape varieties. You have Cabernet, Merlot, Syrah, you may have Cabernet Franc used as well. Now, that bottle that was 30 or 40 euros has an equivalent bottle from a different um, producer, different house, a different chateau. And because it's a different chateau, um, and for whatever reason that could be, it could be the where it's situated in Bordeaux, what section of Bordeaux it's in, whether it's Poyac, uh, Saint-Julien, or, or Saint-Emilion, depending on where it is in Bordeaux, and that exact same mix could be in a different bottle um, and could cost 10 times as much. And that has a whole variety of reasons why that is. And oftentimes it's not necessarily the quality of the product that's doing it. It's a load of other factors, like scarcity, reputation. Um, marketing isn't the right word because they've never really marketed those products. So they don't really have to market them. Is it an ego collector's item Absolutely, type? Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. And the thing is, there's no more ground. So if you have anybody, like if you have Lynch Badge, like you mentioned earlier, they have no extra area to produce grapes in. So this is it. What they produce is what they produce. So what happens is that they need to make a certain amount of money in a year, obviously, to keep everything going. So if the product is good and people want it, then supply and demand, people pay more for it. And it's going all over the world. It's been bought on Premier all over the world in um, Asia, particularly in China, and uh, and they're willing to pay for products that they can recognise. You visited France yourself recently. Yeah, just last week. And where we were going to was uh, the Languedoc. So if you take an area that runs almost from the Spanish um, uh, to the Italian border, all that area across the bottom of France uh, is an area, general uh, classification called Languedoc, has a lot of areas within it. It's a huge production of wine. Produces ten times more wine than Australia does. That region on its Are own. Are you serious? Huge. That's and if you, if you drive down there, like to to Béziers, you know, if you the south of France, Montpellier, Marseille, just drive outside of the cities, or, or if you look out of the train, if you're travelling on the TGV, and you'll see grapes growing everywhere. It's just that's their that's their business. Um, olives and grapes tends to be their business. Um, but you have a lot more energetic, young French producers that, that work in the south of France. An amazing place. And we went there to find a couple of French products that we needed. Um, and we went to a show in in, um, in uh, Montpellier called Vinisoud, which is on every year. But they had 2,500 exhibitors. There's 2,500 wineries that are trying to sell their products. It's a lot of wine to taste. It's a lot of wine, uh, but you need to be organised because if you r- arrive there just looking around you, you just you have to be pre-organised. And we had, luckily we had a number of things already set up to meet there. But we found two products, luckily. We found two. And is that, like, two doesn't seem very many whenever there's over 2,000 there, but was did you feel that there was just room in your portfolio exactly. for we two more? Exactly, we were specifically more? looking for two. Now we carry, we carry already have five uh, products in the south, five ranges, I mean, now from the south of France. But we needed two more because we've a lot of business around each other. 
a lot of business like places like Ballybunion where you'd have five or six restaurants in the same stretch and we can't sell the same products then we have need to sell different products so tell me then what's your personal favorite french wine well as as it's it, the the day that's in it um i think champagne has got a terrible bad um um uh, press over the last few years price is a huge issue with it because it is pretty expensive um but People are drinking a lot of Prosecco. Prosecco is a completely different product to champagne. It's a much sweeter, much easier to drink product, whereas champagne is much drier and has a real biscuity kind of feel to it. Um, but there's nothing like it. If you get a glass of champagne, it doesn't even have to be, you don't have to go over the top on it at all. But like the name mentioned, like that Clico. Clico is a fantastic product. Uh, we have one called Henry Gutorb, which is a much cost much less, and it's a smashing product. It's a great glass. Now, you won't drink it's not as easy to drink as, as Prosecco so you won't drink as much of it all but it's really worth it and really worth it for an occasion you can't beat the label having the champagne written on the label Is it made with the Chardonnay grape? Yeah and Pinot Noir in some cases um, which is a red grape but the, it doesn't affect the colour of the champagne at all So you're a champagne man? Oh no you know listen there's only certain occasions where it actually works out but I just think it's it, like if you're going to have a special occasion and you want to have a glass a bottle of champagne out of a normal champagne glass you get six or seven glasses out of it and it's just something really nice and uh, it's it's worth the investment so it's well of course Valentine's Day is the perfect day to go out and acquire a bottle Absolutely. so if there's anybody listening there that maybe woke up this morning and forgot it was Valentine's Day go down to your <laughs> nearest champagne supplier and pick up a bottle Absolutely. so great to talk to you about French wines so maybe next month we'll go to Italy talk about Italian or Spanish wines perhaps yeah Italy is, is the plan next Italy is an amazing country with such a diversity of wine it's, it's phenomenal and, but getting much more popular in Ireland uh, outside of Pinot Grigio which is just a law unto itself uh, for the amount of Pinot Grigio that sells but outside of that the reds in particular are just smashing reds immediately. Okay great well we'll look forward to that so until then thanks a million Ron. Thanks Sharon You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan sponsored by thetaste.ie voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan. And just before the break, Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants was in studio to talk about wine from France. And there's still time to nip out now and have that bottle of Champers chilling for tomorrow morning. If you're just tuning in, you can catch up on Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 8am. The podcasts, they're available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and you can use the podcast app. And it's also on the taste.ie website, voted Ireland's best online digital food and drink magazine. Still to come tonight, we visit Belfast Cookery School to talk to Ian Hunter. But before that, it's time to head to Cork to meet Richard Jacob. Richard is the co-owner of Idaho Cafe, along with his other half, Maraid. And it's one of Ireland's best known independent cafes, thanks to its excellent coffee, a fantastic menu and their social media flair. Let's have a listen. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Richard, we're here in your independently owned cafe in the centre of Cork, which you own with your wife, Maria. How long have you been here? 17 years, 17 years this year. Wow, you must have seen a lot of changes in the industry over the past 17 years. A huge, huge amount. A huge amount of improvement as well. A real sort of a way more concentration on it about being good food and good ingredients. Just come in a bit more there to me. 
So when you and Maria decided to open Idaho, what was the vision? What did you have in mind and what did you, what way did you want it to be? We were funny. We had a very just simple idea. We were just the idea of doing real food for real people. We wanted to just do the kind of food we liked and just said that, well, if we do what we like, other people will like it too. And that was just kind of the as simple as we had as a philosophy. And then we just got a nice corner site, really small, and said we just we kind of imagined it as just being a really small, quiet little business. But I think it's um, it's kind of developed over time and we've really, really kind of built on the quality of the food, the quality of the ingredients and concentrating on where every single ingredient comes from and making sure we're using as much that we can produce ourselves as well. There's a lot of suppliers name-checked on the menu, so it is obviously very important to you to be using local suppliers and you grow a lot of your own produce. We do. We, we grow a fair bit and we're trying to grow more Firstly, because we just believe that then you don't have any chemicals, you don't have any insecticides and pesticides, and also you know exactly what it is because you've grown it yourself. And we planted 54 apple trees, so we're growing all of our own, obviously, more than enough apples. We hope to start juicing them soon as well. We grow all our own herbs as well, all our own flowers for the cafes. And quite a lot of, we have um, a lot of raspberries and soft fruits during the summer. So your menu is, I think it's a great menu because it's not extensive, but it is jam-packed with lots of really nice things. You still would be very spoiled for choice, like there'd be a number of different things there that I would say, gosh, I don't know whether I should go for this or that. And you have your specials then, so that gives you the flexibility to introduce new dishes every day. Yeah, absolutely. For us, it's, again, Maria only puts on food that she loves on the menu. If you you really believe in something, it's going to come across in the dish. And if you don't, that will come across in the dish too. But what we've really started this year with what Maria's calling healthy stuff, because everyone's talking about healthy stuff and with, when you see Operation Transformation and everything else on telly, people are just far, far more aware about what they're eating. So while this morning I really want a bacon and sausage bap, I know that tomorrow morning I might want not to. So we're doing things like um, lovely brown soda bread with um, smashed banana and just a little swizzle of honey and toasted seeds on top. So it's really, really low calorie, really good quality ingredient but you can go off feeling good about yourself as well and so we're really because it's this tiny little menu we can play with stuff and we can sort of bring in change every day so you must see have seen a lot of changes in customers tastes in the past 17 years because i'd say 17 years ago if you had put brown bread with banana on the menu you would have got a few looks yeah and we wouldn't be here now and it's funny when we first opened as well Nobody drank Americano, everyone drank filter coffee. And we probably sold one espresso a month. Whereas now, 90% of our coffee is Americano. Hardly anyone drinks filter coffee. And people are far more adventurous with food. Like we're, we're really seeing, whereas when we opened first, people said waffles with bacon and maple syrup. Is that a thing? Whereas now, it's people coming in us looking for that. And um, when you put it on a salad with sort of slightly more different ingredients people are embracing and saying oh yeah I'll, I'll, I'll try that I think people are much prepared to try things now and, but um, the comp- from a competition point of view Cork has changed extraordinarily 
there are probably, probably 35 new restaurants in the city in the last three years, which is fantastic because a crowd brings a crowd. And if, if a city becomes known as being filled with restaurants, people will go to the city because it's filled with restaurants. Whereas if there's just six or seven, people will say, oh, we'll give it a skip, but we've been to them all. But at the same time, we've seen an awful lot of the typical plastic franchised, foreign-owned cafes coming in. And it's a shame because they can change the feeling of a city. So while you have all the lovely little side streets with all the lovely little cafes and personality and individuality, the main street can just look like any other street in Europe. So hopefully there'll be a bit of a curve on those. And do you feel then that, you know, obviously they have, they have more money for marketing, they have more money to pay the rents, they're higher volume turnover as well. Do you feel that in Ireland, the government, the councils aren't looking at the bigger picture whenever it comes to business and they're not looking after the, the SME as much as they are the, the inward investment companies? I think it's, it's a challenging one because certainly I know that Cork City Council Certainly they were caught off guard when a certain chain came in and opened all branches without planning permission and they were caught off guard by that. But there's very little that a local authority can do to stop if a large multinational wants to come in and open a series of cafes. There's very little that the council can do. So I think the only thing they can do is rather than try and prevent investment, which nobody wants, they should be really looking to support smaller businesses. And in Cork, what they're doing is they've reduced rates on areas like North Main Street and Barrack Street and said, we're going to promote these areas and use these areas for small independent businesses, which is superb. It's a, it's a great idea because you can never keep a Main Street. You can't protect that. Like The big brands are going to want to use that as cheap advertising space for their brands and unfortunately I think Patrick Street will look like any other street in Ireland or Britain in about a year's time but all of our side streets is where sort of the heart of the city the soul of the city is and the, the council are actively trying to encourage that but we are faced with the thing where from if we wanted to open a, a second cafe on Patrick Street, we'd be paying fifty thousand a year in rates and one hundred and twenty thousand in rent, and it just it wouldn't be viable for us. It's a lot of Americanos. It's a lot of Americanos, but if you're a large multinational, and if you say I'm going to take that site and open a cafe and offset the losses from that against the profits of my one in Dundrum, and this is going to be great advertising because it's a superb site on the corner then you're not really running, you're not in the business of running cafes, you're in the business of, of just running a business, and it's, which is what we're all at at the end of the day, but sometimes you have to do more as well. It's just like a branding exercise for exactly. them, really. Yeah. yeah. And and you're in the same place, in the same site for the past 17 years. Yeah, yeah. So you must have a great landlord. Do you know, well, it, it, I like to think it goes both ways. I think we have a great understanding with our landlord, but at the same time, we're in Cork City Centre on a pivotal corner. We are paying Cork City Centre pivotal corner rates. But, it, it, you know, it, it works. It works very well. We, He's happy to have us. We're happy to be here. Um, we've had misunderstandings over the years with Cork City Council about sort of various issues of planning permissions and policies that have been affecting others but now we're very much looking and saying 
the future of Cork is enormous. There's a huge number of um, new businesses opening. There's a massive Facebook are just opening offices in the city. There's a lot of third generation office space about to open. Three new hotels being built. We're on the cusp of just being an enormously invigorated city. So like, we're, we're prepared to work hand in hand with the city council and just help do what we can to make the city better. And I'm sure now you're, you're delighted to see somebody like Facebook coming because you're a great social media person. You're really very good on social media. What is it that you love about social media whenever it comes to promoting your business? Um, first of all, the absolute spontaneity of it. It's nothing can be. It's not like you're putting an ad in a newspaper where come and enjoy our mouth-watering steaks and succulent seafood. And you look at the ad and say, please. But with this, it's far more personal. You can let your personality come across. And you people, if they look at your social media, they should get an instant idea of who you are and what you do. So when you walk in the door, it kind of makes sense. You say, oh, yeah, I don't. They are a little bit quirky. It is a little bit of a strange um, attitude to things like they close for two weeks on holiday and they open at 8.26 in the yeah, morning. I was just going to ask you about the 8.26 it's just very yeah. quirky isn't it? But again it, it's you know it lets you put your personality out and lets you sort of people get an idea of who you are and what you're doing and you can also I think we use social media hugely to try and speak out for our city so we're not just saying oh call on now and we're doing a special on tea and a scone we really like to kind of shout about what's happening in cork and if it's something that's going on that's right we really shout about it like this amazing collection of independent cafes and we all kind of promote each other like i would constantly be saying oh, if you're not going to us you know call to nash 19 or call to velo or call to duke's coffee and the same they'd do the same to try and encourage people to shop local and you can do that so easily and so quickly on social media and make it bigger. And do you find that a lot of people come in and engage with you because they have come across you on social media? Um, yes, it, it does actually, it generates, it does generate footfall into the cafe. And what we try and do is we do it in a way where it involves everyone. So if if someone follows on Twitter, they're going to come in and they're going to start talking about something that I might have said on Twitter. But you're not going to be alienating the customer who comes in who's never been on Twitter in their life and they don't really give a hoot about it. Because I'm going to be talking about the same thing over the coffee machine anyway. So if they come in, I'm going to be chatting away about whatever I've been talking about on Twitter. I think you have to be careful that you don't build two brands. So you've got this one thing for Twitterati and then one thing for regular customers. It has to be all the same, so no one feels ex- excluded. And Twitter has proved to be very successful in the hospitality industry yes. in, in general, and there was a 9% VAT campaign recently, and I believe there was something to do with that that you were instrumental in. Well, tell us about that. Yeah, there was, um, at the time they were talking about bringing the VAT rate back up from 9%, and it was reduced when the truck came off the rails years ago VAT rate was reduced to 9% for hospitality and it's absolutely essential especially in areas outside of the pale it's it's the only thing that makes a lot of businesses successful and there was kind of a vagueness about it about whether the VAT rate would go up or not and we just said we had to make people aware 
of how important it was and get a message straight through to politicians that he is actually crucial. So we did a virtual flash mob on social media so that at nine o'clock the day, the week before the budget, we got everyone in the hospitality industry to tweet their local politicians just with saying, keep that nine. And it got enormous traction sort of in media and social media and it just brought it to local politicians' heads and they actually saw, oh, this is actually a very big issue. Because I think letters and messages that are sent to, and emails sent to politicians just get lost. But when they see an actual physical number of people who are shouting about something, it's, it's very effective. And stronger together, obviously, and Absol- collaboration absolutely. and all of that's very important. Were you involved in the long table dinner that Cork did last we, year? We were involved in the first one. Unfortunately, we couldn't do the second one. The date didn't work, but we were involved in the first one, and it was, it was fabulous. It was, it was, again, a collaboration, and it really it works brilliantly in a small city because we all know each other anyway. So all, this, all the restaurants want to work together. And it's the kind of city where if we are short of a pound of sugar, we could then borrow it from someone else and they'll come and borrow napkins from us and we all get on. But something like that, it's such a visual sign of a cohesive city. And it's nice, something where none of the restaurants were in it to make money. And certainly in the first one, none of us made any money out of it but you're kind of giving something back to the city and showing people the city is for living and it's for eating in it. And some people would find it very bizarre that competitors would come together like that, but really it is a much better way to operate. Completely. To keep your friends close and your enemies closer. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, and Bertie Earn had another way of saying it. But it, it's, it's the only way, and especially it, it allows restaurants like us where small independently owned we then kind of hang out together on social media with other small independently owned similar businesses and it gets that subliminal message across to people that you're shopping local you're supporting a a local cafe that's spending the money back into the city whereas when you go and support a chain the money's just getting backpacked and put in a truck and taken out of the country and when you get a chance to travel yourself and Maria, is it important for you whenever you are in a different city that you look out the little independent cafes and, and get a feel for what they're up to and maybe get some ideas and benchmark with them? Uh, absolutely. It's it's kind of addictive and you just do it everywhere you go. And it's funny, I the only time sort of where you have to go to the chains then is when you're going to the airport or whatever. But I went to Belfast last week and it's just fantastic again to see sort of smaller independent chains and once you get away from the city centre the quality of food is extraordinary and we went to a great place called um, Established Coffee and they were just it could have been it was just so cutting edge and just beautiful quality but it could only have been in Belfast it was such a Belfast kind of personality about the place and great sense of humour and very outward looking Whereas if you just gone into a chain, you would have learned, you learned nothing. And out of all the cities in the world that you've you've been to, um, which one do you love most for the, the cafe scene? Outside of Cork, of course. Of course, of course. Um, Dublin is great. I really I like what's happening in Dublin. I love um, I love the way Joe's Cafe have taken up and made it a successful kind of brand out of still a personal driven cafe. And then London is just amazing. 
for sort of small small businesses and um, you go into sort of tiny little 15 seater cafes and it's all about the personality of whoever's behind the counter and it, it shines through and yes they have their main streets are all every just Pret-a-Manger and Nero but if you, as soon as you step back one row of streets the, the quality of cafe is fantastic and, and I think that's great advice to give to people that when you do go away get off the beaten track yeah. like do your research beforehand because there are so many different bloggers and different people out there yeah. that can give you free advice and recommendations yeah. and to, to go off the, the main Oxford street type place and find those hidden gems Absolutely. And it, you know, the whole thing is sort of finding the laneways. The same in Melbourne. All the good cafes are hidden down to laneways. The same in London. And just when you walk down the main street, you'll see all the plastic shops. But just head off down the laneways and find the real ones. And once you see somewhere that looks different, try it out. Absolutely. So 2018, what does it hold for Idaho Cafe? It's going to be another year of doing what we do and doing it well. We're, this year we're really obsessive as well about environmental and green and making us even more sustainable. At the moment we're hugely sustainable and we have very, very green and reduced all our electricity bills and by producing a lot of our food ourselves we're cutting air miles out. But we really we want to, we're even talking about planting a, an acre of forest at home as well as the, um, the acre of orchard to try and get our carbon footprint down to zero. That's our kind of our, our plan because th- it's all great to go in and open up a cafe and work away but you have to look at it at the big picture and look at it holistically and say it's, you have to do more and you can't just walk away and trash the planet after you. Like at the moment, we have, when we've finished our recycling, we have one domestic wheelie bin goes for a landfill. That's all at the whole busy cafe. And how many would it have been, say, 10 years ago? Um, certainly it would have been four or five. Really? Yeah. Like wow, it, gosh, that's a, that's a huge difference. Enormous. And we, we think we can, there's far more we can do. We're, the next thing, obviously, is the. the take out coffee cups and we're talking with Cork City Council at the moment to see what we can do. They're very keen to get rid of single-use coffee cups in the city. So we're just looking at that to see how else we can we can do that. The first thing we're trying to say is that if you have three takeout coffees a day, some people do, if you can make one of them a sit-in coffee instead and just go into it doesn't have to be Idaho go into your local cafe and sit down and have your coffee inside instead of taking it out you're getting rid of the takeout cup which is going to be shipped off to Norway to be incinerated you're going to go into a cafe you might meet someone you're going to talk to someone you're going to interact and it's about mental health as well as a cup of coffee like I went into a cafe, a cafe last Friday. I just went in. I was just going to get a takeout. I sat in. I got talking to the owner. I got talking to two customers who come into us as well. I got talking to the guy who roasts the beans. I was there for just five minutes. I spoke to five people, and I went out literally laughing because the owner was a very funny guy. I went out laughing, feeling much better, 
And I think we need to kind of look at it and say that coffee isn't just a beverage. It's not something you have in your hand. It's it's about being social as well. Yeah, we should be sitting down, relax, and, and like the mindfulness is yeah. a great thing for 2018 as well. It's been lovely to talk to you. Congratulations oh. on the 17 years, and be sure to give my regards to Maria, and I thanks will. so much for your time today. Maria is the power force here. I'm just the spoofer. <laughs> You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan. And just before the break, I was in Cork talking to Richard Jacob, who owns Idaho Cafe in Cork City, along with his wife, Maria. And earlier in the programme, Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants was sharing his advice on choosing wines from France. And if you're just tuning in, you can catch up on Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 8am. The podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app. And it's also on the taste.ie website, voted Ireland's best online digital food and drink magazine. Now, time for the final interview of this evening, and it's with Ian Hunter, who runs Belfast Cookery School in the heart of Belfast City. The school caught my attention because of a Game of Thrones-inspired cookery course. I was in the North recently and went to meet Ian, who told me about the Game of Thrones clientele and lots, lots more. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Ian, we're in Belfast Cookery School in the heart of Belfast City Centre. Tell us, when did the, the cookery school open? Yeah, hello, Sharon. The Belfast Cookery School opened in 2012. So this is your sixth year. It is indeed, yeah. And just describe the setup here for the, for the listeners. Right, well, we have um, eight cooking stations with uh, two stations on each bench. And we have two restaurant benches, so the customers will come in. I say we demo the dishes, uh, talk about the food, uh, the history of the food, where it's from, where it's locally sourced uh, in Northern Ireland. I would demo the dish, cook the dish. The customers would then go to their own cooking stations and replicate, to the best of their ability, with my help, uh, what I have uh, demoed. And then they'd return to the uh, restaurant section and sit down and eat their own food. How important is it to you to use Northern Ireland ingredients as much as possible? Oh, absolutely paramount, absolutely paramount. Um, Northern Ireland at the minute, and really has done about the past five years, really come come to prominence uh, food-wise and ingredients-wise. Um, so it is, you know, we always champion Northern Ireland produce and, and how fine it is and, and how good it is. Everything is traceability, sourceable, and as much as we possibly can, 99.9%, we only use Northern Ireland ingredients. Um, obviously, we have some Asian classes and Indian classes where we can get the produce from Northern Ireland, which we especially import in, but as much as we possibly can, Northern Ireland all the way. You have a very impressive CV yourself as a chef. You've worked in some very high-end, very well-known places. Did you did you come across a lot of Northern Ireland ingredients there, or is this something now that um, if you were to go to abroad now to London, you're going to see more like Northern Ireland meat, for example? Absolutely, absolutely. Back then in the 80s and early 90s, probably not so much. But as I say, um, it's come more prominence now, and Northern Ireland, particularly the vegetables, um, there are organic uh, fruit and vegetables. We use a fantastic company run by a friend of mine called Ginger Moo Organics. Uh, and that is certainly he's important to London uh, and all over Europe. 
um, but certainly not in the 80s and 90s, but certainly now, if you walk into any top-end kitchen uh, in, say, London or anywhere in the UK, there's certainly there'll be a lot of Northern Ireland produce there. Yeah. Tell us about some of the kitchens you worked in over in London. <clears throat> oh, let me see now. Um, probably I would have worked longest with Gary Rhodes in the greenhouse in London, and it was maybe not the best environment from a lad from Northern Ireland in the 80s, but... Putting that aside, you learned. Um, you learned from us. Absolutely. I mean, I, w- I wouldn't change it in the slightest. Um, hostile is maybe not the best term to use, but there certainly was. Um, oh, look at that lad from Northern Ireland. There, he's probably in some organisation. But it's all about what I learned there. Put, putting that aside, it's what, all, all, what about all I learned? Yeah. Because it's really interesting that you say that because there is a lot of coverage in the media at the moment about the kitchen environment and yes. about yes. There, there is a movement there to change yeah. it, to yeah. make it yeah. not as aggressive as yeah. it has been in some kitchens, mm-hmm. obviously not in all kitchens. So do you feel that you have worked in these environments that are not ideal and you know exactly how not to be in the kitchen? Absolutely. I mean, that's you really hit the, the, the nail on the head there, Sean. I have experienced that. Um, so whenever I took over my first head chef role and any head chef role since then, I knew not to be like that. I knew that was wrong. Okay? Now, that's not to say people don't need a good telling off now and again, but there is a certain line to cross. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And also the hours. I mean, the hours in the 80s, 90s and still in some places um, are absolutely phenomenal but this is slowly coming around now and it's, it's really, um, it's the shortage of chefs that's really highlighting this, okay? Because people are scared to get into the industry because it is hard work, it is long hours and it has a certain bad reputation like that and the shortage of chefs has really highlighted that so owners now are coming around, thank goodness they're coming around to implement 40 hour work and 45 hours, I mean in the 80s and 90s that was a part-time job if you were a chef. You know, you're doing 70, 80, 90, sometimes 100 hours a week. And that's why we have shortage of chefs. But uh, that has vastly changed now. And it's not it's not always very family-friendly as well. And that's one no. of the reasons why Absolutely. you have moved yeah. from being in the kitchen full-time yeah. to being in a cookery school. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I have two young boys, one seven-year-old and one 17 months. Um, over 30 years in the industry. I thought it was time to take a little step back and um, share my knowledge, um, what what I have gained over the years, uh, to to the cookery school, and it's given me a much more, you know, a much better life work balance. Absolutely. It's very important whenever it comes to offering courses, you've mentioned some of them there, Mm -hmm. it's very important to be innovative and that's something that you're not lacking on here. So tell us about some of the more unusual cookery courses that you offer. Um, Well, I'll finish up with a more famous one, but I'll I'll, I'll just run through a few. We have um, a Sopranos class, okay, uh, based on the very famous HBO uh, television show, which features um, a lot of obviously Italian food, but again food featured in the show and whenever we're doing the class when we're talking about the dish we also talk about what scene that dish was in uh, and soprano fans are, are very fanatical um, I think it was about an hour and a half after this class was, was supposed to begin that was started because we were just talking so much about the sopranos and, and time by the way with us but um, also we're doing one on the Oscars so I've picked um, a dish from favourite Oscar winning movies Tonight, in fact, we have the Titanic class, which is based on the first class menu served on the Titanic, and uh, not just the menu, but the actual recipes from the uh, from the ship as well. Uh, and of course, our famous Game of Thrones um, class, 
which um, Game of Thrones has been fantastic for Northern Ireland, um, using only Northern Ireland projects, and we get a fantastic mix of Game of Thrones, dare I say, geeks, and people who, who want to cook as well, and again, that is uh, recipes featured in the show food feature in the show. Yeah, because I think it must be very interesting to see <clears throat> the profile. Like if you were doing a knife skills class, you're yeah. going to get people that are yeah. there because they want to learn how to cut properly with yes. a knife. Yes. But if you put a theme on it like Titanic or Game of Thrones, you, you must get a, a really range and a, a big mix of different yeah. types yeah. of personalities, yeah. skills and whatnot. Absolutely, it is a very uh, eclectic mix. And that makes it um, that makes it more enjoyable, makes it more fun for myself as well. Um, there's nothing worse than doing a class where um, people are very quiet and, and, and very low key. So certainly those classes that I have mentioned brings a certain a certain type of fan fanboy, dare I say, to it. And it's, they're 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 amazing crack and amazing fun. And that's what we're all about at the cookery school. It's it's nurturing people's passion for, for cooking, it's to educate them and it's to do it in a, in a fun environment. You know, a lot of people might come to the cookery school and I, I know a lot of people come to the cookery school thinking that it is like school, like they're going to get marked and they're very nervous, but no, not at all, it, it's a fun environment. Yeah. For Game of Thrones, do people come dressed up sometimes? They do, yes, they do, yeah. Some, some do, some don't. The same with the Titanic, it's a certain dress code tonight as well. But the Game of Thrones ones, I would say, are probably the most the most passionate. I mean, it is it is a worldwide phenomenon, um, fantastic for Northern Ireland, and yes, it is it's it's an experience. Let me say. Can you tell me about the dishes now that you're doing tonight for the Titanic themed class? Okay, so um, for starters, we have a now it might seem very simple, it might sound very simple, but you know, back then this was very very grand. To start, there is a cream of barley soup. Now, on the menu, when a cream of barley soup, uh, in inverted commas, there is first class, because in my research, there was a cream of barley soup for first class, which is a lot more exotic ingredients. And for second, third, and steerage, it was basically just barley boiled in water. So, first class cream of barley soup contains some uh, lovely smoked pork belly, which wasn't in the lower classes. Uh, for main course, we have a fantastic sirloin uh, rib of beef roast. Uh, and for the compliments for that, it sounds again very simple, which is shadow potatoes and peas a la Francaise, which is petit pois cooked with baby gem lettuce. But again, peas might sound very common to us, have it everywhere, but back then, even the humble fresh pea was considered a luxury. Uh, and to finish off, they're having Waldorf pudding. What's that? Waldorf pudding, no associate again after the research, no, no, no association with Waldorf salad or indeed the hotel. It is like a best way to describe it is like a creme boule with with um, now has apples, walnuts, and grapes, which is associated with Waldorf salad. But all the research I've done and other people have done have found no connection whatsoever, so I don't know if it's a coincidence. But it is a beautiful set custard dish with golden raisins, with nutmeg, with cinnamon. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah, that's it sounds really, really interesting yeah. and, and delicious yeah. also. And yeah. as you're talking there, I'm just thinking about the Titanic sailing and having all this produce yeah. on board. Yeah. Like obviously yeah. everything that you're using now is as fresh as yeah. it, you know, it's mm -hmm. you get it that day or the day before. Yeah. Whereas they would have they must have had massive capacity for storage and to keep everything fresh. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, again, doing my research, there was a tremendous amount of, of waste, of waste, and a lot of the, the in the steerage, 
basically got pretty much the, the rotten apple, should I say. Yeah. Uh, the meat that was maybe slightly to turn, yeah, give it down the stairs, I love that, yeah. yeah. But I can imagine it was a pretty, it was a chef's headache trying to, trying to organise and store that, absolutely, yeah. When you look at the profile of your guests that come to the classes, are they Northern Irish, are they UK, are they international? <coughs> Have you noticed any trend in a particular country that's coming to Northern Ireland to visit more and more? Yes, um, certainly uh, Americans. Our core business, again, would be Northern Ireland, uh, Ireland on a whole, but certainly from the States, from the States and, the, and they are very... They love coming to the, the Titanic class, the Game of Thrones class, because it is touristy, it is Northern Ireland, and it's about Northern Ireland, and that's what they want to experience. So, and as we know, the Americans love the Irish. Yeah. And you are part of the Belfast food tour as well, that Caroline Absolutely, Wilson yeah. does, so uh-huh. she pops in every now and again with she visitors. Does, yeah. Tell us about some of the, the, the classes that you do with them. Well, uh, in our sister restaurant, Orange Seafood Barn, they would um, come in and get cool seafood platters. And uh, Bob and Andy, the owners of Orange Seafood Bar, would talk to them, talk about the history of the restaurant, how it started, the local produce, the local seafood. Uh, I mean, Orange Seafood is and continues to be ranked in the top 10 seafood restaurants of the world. Um, the one we do in the cookery school, I do a demonstration and cook the famous Orange Seafood chowder and some lovely soda bread and then the customers would go and make their own sort of bread. And that yeah. stop is an hour, like that's an awful lot that's, that you do in an it hour. Is, it, is, it is an awful lot, and if Caroline's listening, uh, Caroline, you're walking through, you're always running late, can you keep them in time please? Um, but yes, um, I would make the chowder, demo the chowder, they would taste it and would make their own sort of bread, so it's just about an hour with scraping there, yeah. And team building and corporate work is something that you do a lot of as well. Absolutely, absolutely, we have lots of major, major clients, probably can't name them here and um, but team building is uh, we do a lot of team building yeah and, and it's super because I would devise a menu slightly different from the normal customers menu where they would come in and they work in their stations of two where they have to work together to complete that dish as opposed to making their own so that's fantastic team building and learning to work together yeah because I suppose somebody could be a real have, have excellent yeah. culinary skills yeah. and somebody else could be like you know I have somebody at home that does all this for exactly. me or I'm a local exactly. takeaway type person and uh, we, do, we do get that quite a bit in the, in the cookery school sometimes I feel like a marriage guidance when the husband's standing there doing nothing not trying to be stereotypical and the wife is there going you're not going to do any of that it's like, come on guys, work together, work together. You I know, because wouldn't it be great if the person with the lesser skills did go home and say, yep, I, yeah, I can yeah, do this now, yeah. I can do it once Absolutely. every couple and of weeks you know, or that, whatever. That's, that, you know, that's part of my job, that's to encourage that the person who is not so au fait with cooking uh, to bring them out and, and you know, teach them and, and about it and, and the enjoyment behind it because you know, cooking, cooking is a life skill. It, it really is a life skill. I mean, you breakfast, lunch, dinner and you're probably going to cook one of those meals a day. Um, so, you know, students leaving home, set up home for the first time in their own, they really have to learn how to cook because you can't live on frozen pizzas and oven chips all your life. And it's obviously more cost effective to be cooking Absolutely. for yourself and, as well. And a lot healthier, and a lot healthier, and that's another thing we push in the cookery school. Um, cooking on a budget, cooking cooking healthy on a budget, and you know, with the father of two children working long hours, I know it's the easiest thing in the world to come home and, and stick a pizza and chips in the oven. And there's nothing wrong with that in moderation, but you can't do it all the time. So with, with different classes to teach you about nutrition and, and eating healthy and cooking on a budget as well, yeah. Whenever you talk about teaching, you become very animated. You're obviously very passionate about <laughs> it and yeah, you really yeah, love it. Yeah. More so than being in the kitchen cooking for a restaurant full of people. Well, it's, 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 
it's completely different. Um, as much as I loved cooking in a restaurant, I'm, I'm being under that pressure. And don't get me wrong, there's lots of times where I miss that. And I'm more or less sort of working here on my own most of the time. You miss that uh, camaraderie in the kitchen and you miss being under that pressure. But now I wouldn't go back. Um, not to sound blase about it, I've maybe found you know, my calling in life now after over 30 years. Isn't that great? Yeah, absolutely, Isn't it yeah. fantastic? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. And hopefully that comes through in my classes, yeah. I, and I think a lot of young people, like they want to know immediately what is it, you know, uh, and you'll, you'll often hear 40 or 50 year olds saying like, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do in life yeah, and that's yeah, grand. Yeah, and I yeah. think it's important to try lots of different things because that's yeah. the only way that yeah. you will come absolutely, across absolutely. the I, ideal job. I've always wanted to cook. I've always wanted to be a chef, but there's lots of different parameters and tangents you can, you can do in the catering industry. Um, 30 years working in a hardcore restaurant setting. This, this is fantastic for me now. It really is, it really is. And, and it gives you so much different opportunities. Um, doing the classes, doing um, outside events. Um, we go around different festivals, doing our chowder and our soda uh, demos there. And uh, yeah, that's fantastic. And you never know who you might meet along absolutely, the way. I'd say you've, yeah, you've met yeah. some famous celebrities, yes, well, quirky individuals. We, um, at Tennis Vital last year, we did the food for the Game of Thrones cast. Because again, that's a nice tie-in with the school. And um, Muse, the the rock band Muse, were were beside us, and they come over and had a chat with them and stuff. So yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, it's be fantastic. Well, listen, I really enjoyed talking to you about it today. Thank you very much. Your classes are very busy, so if people are yeah. interested in signing up, what's the best yeah. way for them to get more information? Um, is to go on our uh, website www.belfastcooperschool.com and email info at belfastcooperschool.com which gives us it gives you a full list of our classes until September as far as I'm aware there but they we are sold to, up to the end of June so please be quick if you want to and that gives you a full class schedule of all the different genres of food we do Fantastic Ian thanks so much for talking to me all about it today No problem Sean it's been a pleasure thank you Bon appétit Yummy Grubs up Delicious Mmm Thanks again to Ian and it was great to be back in Belfast. It really is a fabulous city full of culinary surprises like the Belfast Cookery School. And that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Be sure to get in touch with all your food and drink news, stories and recipes. Drop me a line anytime to s.noonan at live.ie. Thanks so much for tuning in and to my guests, Ron Forrestal, Richard Jacob and Ian Hunter. I'll be back at the same time next Tuesday, so until then, have a lovely Valentine's Day tomorrow and bon appetit. Thanks for listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. To get in touch with The Best Possible Taste, email Sharon at SharonNoonan.com or tweet Sharon at Queen of Org. As in, Queen of Organisation. Bon appetit. <laughs>